The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Here we go, Uh, Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 10. It's entitled, The Golden Calf, The Testing of Aaron. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain... The people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burn offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought, you have brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation." Starting with verse 1 of this chapter, a chiasm begins, which will span every single verse until Exodus 34, verse 17, which is eight sermons. However, it is a rather unique chiasm because it not only conveys individual thoughts in individual verses, but it also contains examples which comprise entire passages. It truly is a marvel of wisdom and beauty, which eyes had not rested upon until the 31st of August, 2011. When it came to light, Man, was I excited because this is a nice chiasm. Each time a chiasm is revealed, it sheds new light on what God is thinking and what he wants us to know. I printed off copies for you so that you can keep them in your Bible and follow along with it as we go through these next three chapters. So let's review it now. Our first uh, A category is an example of idolatry. You go down to the bottom. A is a warning against idolatry. B, I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. B, at the bottom, behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Then C, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. 
See, O Lord, let uh, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people. D, Moses meets the Lord in the tent of meeting. D, Moses meets the Lord on Mount Sinai. E, you have said, I have known you by name. E, I know you by name. Uh, F, you have also found grace in my sight. F, you have found grace in my sight. G, now therefore I pray that I have found grace in your sight. Show me your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. G, I will do this thing that you have spoken. Uh, H, and consider that this nation is your people. H, so we shall be separate, your people, and I from all the people who are on the face of the earth. Then I, uh, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I, for I, how then will it be known that your people uh, and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us. And then, of course, we have the anchor verse. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Marvelous stuff there. As you can see, the center of the chiasm is verse 3315. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. The people were prone to idolatry and they were stiff-necked in their demeanor. But Moses knew that unless the presence of the Lord went with them, there would be no true way of knowing that they had received his grace. In type and picture, the presence of the Lord being with Israel is realized in the giving of the Holy Spirit to those in the church. He is the seal and the guarantee of God's presence in our lives. Sometimes we might feel that he's distant from us or he's left us entirely. But this is more often than not because we have fallen back into some type of sin highlighted by the idolatry of Israel. That goes well with our text verse of today, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Let us remember that the Lord is with us and that we should act in accord with that knowledge at all times. Let us be pleasing to God and stand firm on the commands, the exhortations, and the prohibitions which are given to us for right and holy living, such as what we are told to do in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, this is your God, O Israel. It's verses 1 through 4. For the sake of context, what we need to do here is to go back and remember where we are in the history of the book of Exodus. Using Moses as their leader, the Lord had brought Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. On the way to Sinai, and even at the foot of Sinai, he had showed them great and marvelous proofs of his abilities to care for them, as well as his affections directed towards them. At Sinai, he had come down in their presence and verbally pronounced to them the Ten Commandments. After that, because of the terror of that meeting, they had asked the Lord to not speak to them any longer. Therefore, towards the end of chapter 20, Moses ascended Sinai and received the book of the covenant. This went all the way through chapter 23. After receiving the book of the covenant, Moses went back down and the covenant between the Lord and the people was cut. The agreement was made and the people committed themselves to obedience. This was followed by the covenant meal between the Lord and the leaders of Israel. 
After this, towards the end of chapter 24, Moses and Joshua ascended Sinai again, where Moses would be presented with the details for the construction of the sanctuary and all of its furniture, the ordination of the priests, the details for the sacrifices and offerings, and the law of the Sabbath. At the end of chapter 31, the very last thing that was recorded was this, Exodus 31, 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. That's where we closed last week. The two tablets of the testimony written by the finger of God, which contained the Ten Commandments, was handed to Moses. The words which had been uttered at the beginning of chapter 20 by the Lord were written down by him and presented to the leader of the people. This then is the context of where we are right now. Verse 1, now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the words ha'am or the people are certainly used in a general sense. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that some of the people were involved in the depravity of the idolatry to be described here today. Regardless of this, though, these things will normally start with just a few, and they'll eventually permeate the entire body. Whether few or many, then, they are regarded as a single group. They had been brought out of Egypt, and they had been promised to be brought back into the land of their forefathers. But after an extended period of sitting idle, They are restive, and they're unable to endure the delay any longer. The word used concerning Moses, which is translated here as delay, is bosh. It is a verb, which means to be ashamed. But the primary meaning is to fall into disgrace, normally through failure, either of self or of an object of trust. The word has only been used one time so far, and it gives us a clue to the entire flavor of the coming account. It was first seen in Genesis 2, verse 25, with these words. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not bush. They were not ashamed. In Eden, there was no shame. There was no disgrace. There was peace between God and man. But that quickly changed when sin entered the picture. It is sin which causes shame and which brings about disgrace. The people imply that Moses has let them down just as God was disappointed in Adam. A classic use of this word, and one which resembles the events which lie ahead, comes from Isaiah 44, verse 9. It says there, Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. That same word there. Due to the delay, it seemed that Moses had failed and had fallen into disgrace. Either he had died in the fiery inferno up there on the mountain, or he had packed up and left and never let the people know, or some other type of event had occurred. Whatever their thoughts about Moses, it included the idea that he had fallen into disgrace. Thus, the irony of what is about to occur centers on this word given to us in the first sentence of the account. Rather than Moses, it is the people who will fall into disgrace. Moses, or he who draws out, will have to draw them out of the wrath of God, which will be directed towards them. We were told in Exodus 24 that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. This means that what we are seeing here occurs somewhere around five weeks after this ascent. We know this because the details of what we will look at took at least a few days and maybe even a whole week to transpire. The Lord selected this period of 40 days for a reason. According to E.W. Bollinger, the biblical meaning of the number 40 is this. 
40 has long been universally recognized as an important number, both on account of the frequency of its occurrence and the uniformity of its association with a period of probation, trial, and chastisement, but not judgment, like the number nine, which stands in connection with the punishment of enemies, but the chastisement of sons and of a covenant people. It is the product of five and eight, and it points to the action of grace, which is five, leading to and ending in revival and renewal, which is the number eight. This is certainly the case where 40 relates to a period of evident probation. The 40 days are rightly defined by him as a time of evident probation. The people had been given the law, and now they were being tested with that law without their chief leader there to supervise them. How would Aaron fare as his designated representative? How would they fare? There are eight such great 40-day periods recorded in Scripture. One of them corresponds to this period in a marvelous way. Israel was given these 40 days of testing, and they are now shown to have failed. Jesus was given 40 days of testing, and he prevailed. Verse 1 continues, The people gathered together to Aaron. The Hebrew here reads, Ve'yekahel ha'am aharon. Al Aharon, I'm sorry, and assembled the people against Al, against Aaron. Aaron and Hur were appointed as the leaders during Moses' absence. Being the prominent leader, the people have come against him in a forcible way. It is what we could consider the possible beginning of a mob scene. Verse 1 continues and said to him, Come. The word is kum, it means to arise. They're tired of waiting. And they're adamant that Aaron now arise and take action. And so they demand that he get up and act. Verse 1 continues, make us gods that shall go before us. The word for gods here is Elohim. It can mean either God, singular, or gods, plural. Different translations say one or the other. However, in this verse, the word for shall go is Yelaku. It is in the plural. And therefore, they are demanding visible gods, plural, to lead them. In these words, then, multiple sins are seen. The first is a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The second is a violation of the second command. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image. They have also devolved from monotheism to polytheism. Regardless of what Aaron actually makes, they have requested gods. The mentioning of the Lord handing the Ten Commandments to Moses after his long discourse on the mountain is not without significance then. There are several purposes for it. First, it came at the end of the directions for the sanctuary as the fulfillment of what the sanctuary anticipated. All of the details look forward to Christ. But without the law which Christ fulfilled, there would still remain an eternal disconnect between God and man. Only when this law was placed in the ark and covered by the mercy seat could there be a sort of restoration of that fellowship which was lost in Adam. Secondly, it was given to show us that a willful, open, and united act of disobedience against these laws had taken place. The people had forgotten the words of the covenant, but the Lord had not. They had agreed openly and publicly to it, and they had openly and publicly violated it. And so thirdly, we will see the just due for violating God's law and the mercy and grace which is granted when God's mediator stands between the offended and the offenders. Moses, as a type of Christ, will be seen to do just this in the verses ahead. Without his intercession, the people would have been destroyed. Verse 1 going on, For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The words here show double contempt. 
The first is upon the unnamed Lord. Instead of relying on he who had already shown himself reliable on numerous occasions, they completely ignore him in what they say here. It is as if he isn't even a consideration. Instead, they turn their contempt towards the human instrument of their situation, Moses, by saying the words, Kize Moshe, for this Moses. The words again imply that he is a failure. Yeah, whatever happened to that guy? It reflects a quickly faded gratitude for all that this guy had done, especially concerning their acknowledgement that he was the man who had brought us up out of the land of Egypt. What is even more incredible is that they are right there at the base of Mount Sinai. All they had to do was send someone up to see what was going on in the cloud and in the fire. But they were too cowardly to even do this. They were warned not to do this thing, but they were also warned not to do the thing that they're about to do. It is an acknowledgement that they knew. They knew it very well that the Lord was there, but instead of coming to face him, they would stay below and disgrace him. And yet, even more, they continued to receive their daily portion of manna and their stream of water, which came right out of the rock. Exodus 16.35 tells us that the manna continued unabated for 40 years. Joshua 5 verse 12 tells us that the manna finally ceased only when they had eaten of the produce of Canaan exactly 40 years later. Instead of the unseen Lord who would care for them by his effort, they sought a visible God who would embolden them in their own effort. And thus pride has stepped into the minds of the people. They have fallen into the same sin as their first father. And in defiance of God, they intended to work their way into the promised land apart from him. It is the same pattern which all false religions follow. They use what God offers to sustain them, just as Israel continued to eat the manna, but they ignore his leading and his counsel, just as Israel set out to fashion their own gods. But Matthew Henry shows us that this is not how it should be. He says, while Moses was in the mount receiving the law from God, the people made a tumultuous address to Aaron. This giddy multitude were weary of waiting for the return of Moses. Weariness in waiting betrays to many temptations. The Lord must be waited for till he comes and waited for though he tarry. Sounds like us waiting on the rapture, doesn't it? Verse two, and Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. What Aaron should have done was to stand and defend the honor of the Lord and the keeping of his commands. He was entrusted with the care of the people after having been included in the meal with the Lord on the mountain. He had seen the Lord prove faithful time and time again, but he was also a weak, infallible person, unwilling to sacrifice himself in the defense of the Lord. And yet he knew that the right thing to do was to not obey the demands of these people. In hopes of deterring them from this course of action, he goes to what he supposes is their greatest source of affection by asking them to break off their golden earrings. The word translated as break is parak. It means to break off or to tear away. It is a rather rare word being used only 10 times in the Bible. Instead of telling them to take them off, he uses this stronger word, which almost gives the idea of violence. It is a challenge to the people. All right. If you want me to do this thing, then you will have to do this other thing. The word for earring is nezem. It means simply a ring. It can be an earring or a nose ring or some other type of ornament. Here, it is specifically noted, though, as being in their ears. Genesis 35, verses 2 through 4, makes it apparent that the wearing of these nezem, or rings, was in and of itself some 
type of idolatry. Here's what it says. And Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings, the nazem, which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. They had probably gotten these as a part of the plunder when they left Egypt. They would now be considered a valuable and deserved blessing. But now Aaron was telling them that if they wanted a corporate idol, they would have to give up their personal ones. It seems that he was betting that they would not be willing to make such an exchange and would rather prefer their own valuable possessions. Even more, he specifies those that belong to the wives, the sons, and the daughters. He probably felt that the people would be as weak towards their families as he was towards them. This sediment of what occurs here in defiance of the Lord is actually something that he later sets down as a precept in his word. In Malachi chapter 2, we read this, If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. This, in fact, is what will occur with these cherished possessions of the people. The blessings of their departure from Egypt will become a curse. Verse 3, so all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. If it was Aaron's intent to keep the people from their plans, he failed. It says that all the people asked him this thing. Again, this does not necessarily mean all of the people of the camp, but at least it means all of the people who had conspired against the Lord. They tore away their earrings and made a molded calf. Verse 4, And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Now, once in a while in the Bible, you're going to come across a verse that nobody knows how to translate, okay? The King James Version admits this in their preface to their, uh, their original preface to their translation of the Bible. There are some things they have no idea what it means, and this is one of them. The words are so difficult to translate that there are a multitude of possibilities as to what occurred here. Some say that instead of receiving the gold and fashioning it, he received it and bound it in a bag. The same type of wording occurs in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 23. Some say that the order is reversed and that he made a molded calf and then fashioned it with an engraving tool. But that's not how cast images are handled after they have been cast. What is possible is that it mentions the receiving of the gold first to show that Aaron was now compelled to fashion a god for the people. After this, he fashioned the thing from wood with a chisel, and then next he had the gold melted and poured out on it. The reason that this is likely comes from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 21. It says there, Then I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it and ground it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that had descended from the mountain. That it was burned seems to imply that the core was wood. Only after the wood was burned away did he crush and grind the gold into dust. This seems likely from the words used. First, the word for fashioned is yatsar. So far, it's only been used three times in the Bible. Now think of the parallel that God is making for us here. The first two are seen in these words from Genesis 2. And the Lord God formed Yatsar, man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had Yatsard that he had formed. 
After this, it was used one more time in God's forming of the beasts of the earth. Now it is seen in opposition to those uses. Instead of the Lord forming a man and beasts for the man's use, it is man forming a God in the form of a beast in defiance of the Lord. The word for engraving tool here is cheret. It's used for the first of just two times in the whole Bible. It comes from a root meaning to engrave, and so it indicates a chisel or a graver. In Isaiah, it's used to indicate a pen for writing. The word for molten is masecha. This is its first use in the Bible, and it comes from the word nasak, which means to pour out like a libation and thus to cover something. Thus, if a wood form was made, it would then have been covered with the gold which had been melted and then applied over it. From this, they formed their false god, a calf. The word for calf here is egel. Again, it's a new word in scripture. It is the same as the adjective agol, which means circular or round. Now, what does that have to do with a calf? The reason is that a calf, especially one nearly grown, will frisk around, dancing and twirling. The mental imagery of this is beautifully seen in Malachi 4, verse 2. Here's what it says. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. So you see where these words get their basis from. Why a calf is selected is not agreed upon. Many scholars tie this calf in with the calf worship of Egypt's god, Apis, the god of strength and fertility. Others disagree, and they claim that Egypt's worship was only of living animals, not images. If they wanted a god to follow, they could just have taken one of their own calves and sacrificed to it and followed it wherever it led. Thus, they tie the calf all the way back to the Babylonian times prior to Abraham. What is correct is that they were relying on a god of Egypt. Many ancient images of Apis have been found in Egypt. And Acts 7 verse 39, which I'm going to cite in just a minute, tells us that it was to Egypt that their hearts had turned. They had left the Lord and what he had revealed to them. And this is evidenced in the next words. Verse 4 continues. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Hebrew here reads, Ele el Elohecha. These are your gods. It is plural. Again, people argue what the intent is by the use of the plural. Some see it as being the many earrings of the people being combined into one form, and thus the plural is used. Others see the plural being used for the singular. In other words, the sign of the thing represents something else. This seems likely based on Aaron's words of the next verse. He will call for a feast to the Lord, meaning Jehovah, implying that the calf stands in place of the Lord as their recognizable image of him. But even this is in direct violation of the Ten Commandments, and it shows that regardless of Aaron's intent, the hearts of the people had rejected the Lord. His chosen leader was long gone, and they had closed their eyes to his past mercies and their hearts to his future promises. This is attested to by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He says, this is he who is in the congregation, speaking of Moses, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with their fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt... We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. What will we do in our times of distress? How will we deal with the unseen Lord? 
when our lives devolve into a horrendous mess, will we hold fast to the promises in his word? Or will we turn to another God, which is no God at all? Will we forget what Christ has already done for us? Through his cross, he has reversed our fall. This came through the blood of our Lord Jesus. The unseen Lord is a hard concept to follow. It is true. But this is what he would ask of us, faith to display. By remembering what he has done in the past for me and for you, we can have strength to continue in Jesus day by day. And so let us never forget his gift, his holy word, which reminds us of the faithfulness of our Lord. Our second thought today is a stiff-necked people. Hurts doing that. Verses 5 through 10. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. With the handiwork of the workmen accomplished, Aaron now provides full assent for the continued path into apostasy by building an altar before the Lord. After the giving of the Ten Commandments, the people asked Moses for the Lord to speak to them no more. After that, Moses ascended the mountain to receive the Book of the Covenant. And the very first thing which was mandated in that Book of the Covenant at that time of the law was the law of the earthen altar. This is what that passage says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make an altar to me of stone, you shall not build build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. You remember that entire passage, those few verses completely pictured Christ in every way. And the nakedness that he was speaking about was the nakedness of sin. It wasn't speaking of physical nakedness. And now they're repeating, they're violating the very thing that they were given first after the giving of the Ten Commandments in direct violation of the law of the altar. Aaron approved the work of man's hands and he built an altar to the abomination. And in addition to that, in further disobedience to the Lord, he next makes a proclamation. Verse 5 continues, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Not only did he approve of an image formed by man's hands, and not only did he build an altar to it, but he ascribed to it the character of Jehovah by claiming a feast to him. The self-existent one who proclaimed to Moses and through him to the people of Israel, I am that I am, had been reduced to an image of wood and gold. And that image was merely an image of something else which had been created by God, having been formed by him as he desired. Now a mere image of his handiwork, that of a brute beast, had been exalted by Aaron as a representation of his infinite being. The disgrace of what he has done is literally incomprehensible, and yet it is something that almost every human being has done countless times in his own life. We form a God in our image, whether it is through physical idols or active disobedience to his word, we form our own God suitable to our own liking. Whether we decide that God is wrong in forbidding abortions or whether we ignore his word concerning the order of the family unit or whether we refuse to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, we recreate a God in our image and for our glory. The difference between Aaron and us is that Aaron's deed happens to be recorded for all of us to read. The evil we have done may be out of sight, 
but it is recorded by God and it will be brought to light. Verse six, then they rose early on the next day. The idea that we get here is that the people were too excited to sleep. The tedium of the five previous weeks had become too much for them. The thought of a feast day was as exciting to them as the thought of a coming wedding day. No sooner had the sun risen than they went forward for their day of feasting. Verse 6 going on, offered burn offerings and peace offerings. The one offering that they needed the most, which one? The sin offering is noticeably missing from this verse, isn't it? Instead, they made burnt offerings to appease their false god, and they brought peace offerings as a sign of fellowship and intimacy with him. But they were blinded to their sin, and they never considered such an offering. Verse 6 continues, And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Along with the sacrifices came feasting and drinking. As with most of such things, when conducted in an unholy manner, it led to something worse. The words here are, Ve'yakumu letzachek and rose up to play. Probably, probably, they included fornication and adultery and things like that. It is the same word which was used concerning the accusations against Joseph by Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39, 14. So we're getting a tie in there of what's going on. Paul cites this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, along with a list of other things, which brought about the wrath of God upon the people of Israel. After citing them, he then followed up with these words of warning, assurance, and relief. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will always make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, that's a promise from God's word, and that ought to be an assuring one because we all face times of temptation and trial and all of these things that come against us, just like the people came against Aaron. And God has promised that he is faithful, that we can get out of that if we just pay attention to him. And the only way we're going to do that is by paying attention to his word and having it instilled in our lives. The lessons of the past have been given to us as examples for us to learn by. God is not contained in a box and he is not represented by an animal or a man except in the person of Jesus Christ, who alone is the image of the invisible God. As servants of the Lord, we are to refrain from idolatry and we are to refrain from sexual immorality, both of which are ever more prevalent in our society today, and both are therefore all the more easy to fall into. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, go, get down. The Lord uses the same term now that he did in Exodus 19, verse 24, lek, red, go, get down. It is a highly emphatic expression implying emergency and expecting urgency. Moses didn't understand the urgency in Exodus 19. In this chapter, he is not even aware of it. It is such a forceful expression that it even affects him. Verse 7 continues, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. The term amecha or your people carries one of two possibilities. The first is that the Lord is telling Moses that the people have sinned and they require a mediator to intercede for them. The second is that the Lord has actually disavowed them as his people. The covenant which was there to unite them is broken and they are no longer his people. What appears from the coming verses and chapters is a mixture of both. The Lord has now distanced himself from the people, but he understands that the tie of Moses' blood relationship is permanent. Now you got to keep thinking of Jesus because he's tied to us permanently through blood. As we will see, he will offer a new beginning through Moses promising to make him a great nation. 
But because of Moses' faithfulness to his people, in chapter 34, the Lord will continue the covenant between himself and Israel. The greatness of Moses the man is seen in both how the Lord deals with him and how he deals with his people. No matter what, though, at the present time, the people have broken the covenant and the Lord is rightly offended at their actions. Concerning what they have done in relation to modern idolatry, and this is something that's important for all of you to remember in case you ever decide to go to a Catholic church, Adam Clark provides very wise words of counsel. He says, this is one pretense that the Roman Catholics have for their idolatry in their image worship, that their high priest, the Pope, collects the ornaments of the people and makes an image, a crucifix, a Madonna, etc. The people worship it, but the Pope says it is only to keep God in remembrance. But the whole of God says, thy people have corrupted themselves, and thus, as they continue in their idolatry, they have forfeited the blessings of the Lord's covenant. They are not God's people. They are the Pope's people, and he is called our Holy Father, the Pope. Keep that in mind, because we're getting into the end times where he's going to be leading the whole world astray with all of their false religions. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them. The words here show that whether the people thought Moses was gone a long time or not, the Lord saw it as a very short span. They turned away from him, and they were in a hurry to do so. And because of this, the guilt of their actions was all the more visible and intense. He had commanded telling them the proper way in which to live before him, and no sooner had he done so than they had turned aside to the false path. As Arthur Pink describes this, he says, man must have an object, and when he turns from the true God, he at once craves a false one. Verse 8 continues, they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. His words here confirm the analysis of Adam Clark concerning the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church. The Lord says that not only had they made a molded calf, but they had worshipped and sacrificed to it. The Lord deems such actions of worship not of him, but of the object itself, regardless of what the verbal expression of the people claim. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. The Lord was fully aware of the people before he ever created them. Certainly for this reason, as much as any other, he chose them. This might seem contradictory, but it is not. When making an example of something or someone, you choose that which fits the type most perfectly. The Lord chose Israel, knowing the hardness of their hearts and their rebellious nature, so that they could be an example to all people, which is carefully recorded in his word. And the metaphor he uses to describe them now is one which will be used numerous times of them in Scripture and countless more times throughout their history. He says they are a stiff-necked people. The word is normally explained as being obstinate, but it's more than that. It signifies a perverse people who want to behave in a way which is both unacceptable and unreasonable, even in spite of the consequences they know that they will face. It is a metaphor which finds its source in an animal which will not submit itself to yoke or to bridle. He stiffens himself against the pull of the rain, even if it hurts. Thus, Israel is being described as the very animal that they've just shaped and worshipped, a twirling calf. It is as if in history we are viewing a rodeo, and Israel is the twirling, obstinate calf. They failed to submit to the yoke of God's law right in the sight of that burning mountain, just after a breakfast of manna provided by the Lord, which formed on the ground upon which they now danced. 
This term for them will be used again and again to remind them of their infancy in the wilderness, where they bowed their hearts away from God and they turned their necks rather than their faces to him. In their defiance, the Lord now displays his anger at them. The dread and the horror which was on full display at Sinai at the giving of the Ten Commandments can now be expected to be released on them for violating those very same laws. It is a pattern which will be seen time and time again in their history. The first is promised, and it is promised right now. Verse 10, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. The Lord now states to Moses the words, and you let alone me. This appears to be a command, but it is not. It is the beginning of another test. Aaron was tested and he failed. Now a new test is introduced. This becomes clear with the next words, and my wrath will burn hot against them and I will consume them. His burning wrath and his promised destruction is merely an exercise in revealing the character of Moses. This is what occurred when Jacob wrestled with the Lord by the Jabbok River back in Genesis 32. If you remember that, here's what it said. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. The Lord tested Jacob, not for his own learning, but for Jacob's. Now we see the same thing occurring again. The Lord has told Moses to leave him alone, not that or so his anger may burn against the people, but and his anger may burn against them. If Moses agrees, the action will occur. And the test is made greater with our final words of the day. We finish up with, and I will make of you a great nation. It is almost an exact repeat of the words spoken to Abraham 430 years earlier. And I will make you a great nation. The metal of the man is being tested. The love of his people, the faithfulness to his duties, and the desire for recognition are all being established right here, right now. As noted earlier, the number 40 speaks of a time of evident probation. Aaron failed. The people failed. But Moses' character is yet to be revealed. He's gone now 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Will he remain steadfast in his love for his people, in his faithfulness to his God, and his ability to withstand temptation? He's being used as a picture of Christ who endured the same testing almost 1,500 years later, Next week, we're going to pick up with the account of this memorable incident, which we can turn to in order to learn valuable insights into how we ourselves should be willing to act when faced with our own temptations and our own human limitations. We, like Israel, like Aaron, and like Moses, have been brought up out of the land of Egypt, the land of sin. The Lord has promised to take us back to the land that we originally came from, the land of promise. In the meantime, we are to live by faith and not by sight. We cannot replace our affections and our devotions to the Lord with inanimate objects like statues of Mary or false gods of gold and silver. We cannot trust in money or IRAs to keep us secure as we go. We cannot make sex or work or wealth our God. Instead, we are being asked to trust the Lord and to pursue Him alone. And it's tough, isn't it? 
because we all have those burning desires in us at some point or another when we say, God, I just don't know if I can trust you. I met some nice people as I traveled around the U.S. in 2010 who fell into a really bad patch. It involved courts and confinement for the husband and real distress for the wife and the children. They became exceedingly pious and seemed to hold fast to the Lord through what happened. But guess what? Not long after his confinement ended, he went back to his profession and the money started rolling in. She became a bodybuilder. They stopped posting about the Lord and instead they make daily posts about the empire that they're building. It is an empire built on sand. I assure you of that. Any such God that we put our trust in will fail us. The money will fade, the looks will disappear, the bodies are going to tire out and only emptiness is going to be left. What a sad price to pay for the temporary pleasures of this life. Let us put away our golden calves and fix our eyes up on the high mountain where the Lord dwells. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us be resolute in our stand upon God's sacred word. And let us never be willing to forsake our love and our devotion to our most honored Lord. If you've never called out to him to be your savior, I would hope that today you would do it. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. The Bible says that today is the day of God's favor. Now is the time of salvation. The Bible shows us that we need that too because it says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We have sin in our lives and it separates us from our creator. And it says next that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in us. And the wages are what we earn. We get paid at the end of the week for the job that we've done. Well, we get paid with death for the wages of sin. And there are two types of death in the Bible. The first is one that we got from the beginning. It was paid the moment we were born. Actually, it was paid the moment we were conceived by our first father, Adam. I was conceived in iniquity, the Bible says. We're already cut off from God. And then we earn more wages of death. And we end up dying a physical death eventually because of it. And if we don't get the first death taken care of before the second death comes, it will last for all eternity. The Bible goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We've earned the wages of death, separation, condemnation, and hell. And instead, he offers us grace. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. A gift cannot be bought. It cannot be paid for. It can only be received. And it's done by faith. If you trust in the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what God asks of you is to have enough faith to say, I have a sin debt I can't pay. I understand that he paid it on the cross of Calvary for me. I believe it is true that my sin is washed away in his death. And the proof of his, it is that he came out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. He had no sin of his own. And so he must have come out of the grave. Death could not hold him. It was impossible. And so I would ask you today that if you've never asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, to lead you to the path which is higher then you are up to the top of the high mountain. Call on Jesus and he will lead you up that way. I assure you of it. He is a faithful God. He's faithful to do so. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 106. It's verses 19 through 22. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. How faithless we are. Five weeks, that's all it took, and they just turned their hearts to him. 
man, if I didn't have my Bible for five weeks, I'd be these people too. Every single day, twice a day, three times a day, all day, just sit and read your Bible. It'll keep you from this. Next week, we have Exodus 31, 11 through 24. I'll tell you, it's always exciting to see what the Bible shows us. It's entitled The Golden Calf, The Testing of Moses. That'll be your 90th Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you this as I do each week. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Real quick poem based on the uh, verses that we just looked at and then uh, we'll take communion and be done. This is entitled The Golden Calf. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed instead, coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and to him said, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up also out of the land of Egypt, what has become of him, we do not know. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, so let it be, and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron of the Lord God. They showed no fears. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf and Aaron truly acted like a fool. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt, as you know very well. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, disobeying God's word. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go, get down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have performed great wickedness, no doubt. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. As I did tell, they have made themselves a molded calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it as well. And said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This to the people they did tell. And the Lord said to Moses, who was paying heed, I have seen this people, and it is a stiff-necked people indeed. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them in my consternation, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Lord God, we sure know how to strive against you. It is in our nature to stiffen our necks in this way. Grant us wisdom to do what is right to do and to be pleasing in your sight. This we pray. Help us to follow closely what is written in your word and to be a light on our path guiding each of us. Help us to be obedient to the things we've heard concerning what you have done through our Lord Jesus. Lead us to your place of rest and eternal glory, that which is promised in the gospel story. For this we pray and to this help us to attend. And surely we shall praise you forever, days without end. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, look into our hearts and search us out. Most of us here probably have some little idol that we're still holding on to. I know I do. They come and they they get infected in us and it's hard to push them out. And then after searching us out, cleanse us. Take away that which defiles and help us to remember daily to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to treasure what you have given us in the pages of the Bible, which are meant to keep us from this type of disaster that we're seeing here. Lord, the whole world is heading down the golden calf pathway right now. And I would pray that many people would be saved out of it. And if it means that the rapture has to happen first and they have to uh, submit to uh, uh, a sword on their neck, that they would be willing to do so to exchange their 
faithlessness for your glory. Lord, we love you. You are so good to us. You have done so much for us, and we just, we can never repay you for what you've done. And so help us just to live honorable lives in your presence and to just exercise faith as we pursue you with every bit of our fiber and every bit of our being. And Lord, I pray for um, uh, Roy and Mike's sister, Debbie, and she's um, facing some uh, troubles right now. I believe I was told, and I'm forgetting, but I think it was her husband is facing uh, stage four lung cancer. And we want to pray for that right now. We want to pray for the mom and dad who are having their own difficulties. And Lord, be with them, help them through these things. And uh, we'll be sure to praise you as you continue to, uh, to lead us. Oh, and one more thing. I understand that the husband is not a saved person. And so we would pray for that above all else. Please be with them and help him to come to you. And Lord, we thank you for all the good blessings you've given us. And we exalt you and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul writes these words to us. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks for this. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, HaMotzi Lechem Min HaAretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It was nice to see Cindy and uh, Mm -hmm. Joe today. Wow. Very nice. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to come and to share in this memorial of the Lord's death. And it says that we're going to do this until he comes. And may that day be soon. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We exalt you. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.